Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Der sker så meget på information, at vi indimellem bliver nødt til at lave om på planerne, også her for Langsomme Samtaler. Vi har i den forgang nu været så heldige, at vi har haft besøg her på avisen af Adam Tews, som er en britisk-tysk økonomihistoriker, professor på Columbia University og forfatter til blandt andet den bedste bog, der er skrevet om finanskrisen overhovedet, der hedder Crashed, og den bedste bog, der er skrevet om, hvordan corona rystede verdensøkonomien, nemlig nedlukket, som er udgivet på informationsforlag. Og vi havde Adam på besøg her på avisen, og vi havde et møde ned i vores kantine med ham, hvor vi diskuterede krigen i Ukraine, vi diskuterede krigen i Israel, vi diskuterede, hvordan venstrefløjen i tre årtier har overladt verdensfreden til Wall Street. Vi diskuterede klimafremskridt og demokratiske tilbageskridt i Kina. Vi diskuterede med andre ord med en af de sjoveste, mest interessante og selvkritiske progressive venstreorienterede overhovedet, Adam Tews, hele verdenssituationen. Og vi får ret ofte at vide fra vores læsere, der ikke bor i København, læsere og lyttere, der ikke bor i København, at de oplever, at de går glip af en hel del, når de ser alt det, som vores abonnenter får adgang til nede i kantinen. Og det er en kritik, som vi tager til os. Det er derfor, vi rejser rundt i landet og holder vores festivaler rundt omkring. Men det er også en kritik, vi tager til os i den forstand, at hvis vi så har et arrangement, som vi selv synes har været fantastisk godt, så deler vi det med jer, uanset hvor I er, så alle kan lytte med. Og den her samtale med Adam Tews var sådan en, hvor alle sådan set gik derfra en lille smule opløftet, også lidt nedtrykt, han sagde til mig lige efter samtalen, it's heavy, isn't it? Og jo, det er tungt, men der er også noget enormt befriende og intellektuelt mobiliserende over at kigge dyret direkte ind i øjnene og forsøge at forholde sig til det, der er tungt, og så få fornemmelsen af, at måske kan vi alle sammen løfte sammen. Så derfor så har vi skiftet ud på rækkefølgen i langsomme samtaler, og i den her uge der får I vores møde fra Informationsforsamlingshus med vores gode ven Adam Tews. Let me start by asking you, Adam, about the word polycrisis, because when you, the f- concept was first introduced, I was a little skeptical about it, because I thought we have the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, which is an existential crisis. Then we have a lot of big problems. I do recognize they are big problems. I recognize they're interrelated, and they, of course they have some influence on the climate and biodiversity handling uh, as well. But at first I thought, no, 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 let's stick to the fact that we have one major crisis, and then we have the, the other problems. But you're, you've been, uh, I don't, you didn't introduce the term, but, but your first, but your first uh, column in the Financial Times was welcome to the world of polycrisis. I, I, I think, why is it that you like the term as an approach to understanding today's world? So you're, you're right that I came to it by degrees. So I had kind of registered it out of the corner of my eye when I was finishing Crashed. Because um, it's kind of there in the EU, um, some of the technical European studies literature, um, and it's there because Jean-Claude Juncker began to use it around 15-16 to describe the combination of the Syrian refugee crisis, Ukraine one, the end of the eurozone crisis, the rise of populism in Europe, all conv- all converging. And he borrowed it from the French complexity theorist Edgar Morin. So I thought, well, oh, that's kind of interesting. Didn't do anything really with it in the crashed book began to think about the conjunction and then COVID hit. And in shutdown, it's there, but very much in the mode of a historian using it. In other words, saying, you know, there are three different ways in which this conjuncture of crises is being thought. In the American case, it's typically a kind of solipsistic, massive national crisis in which everything converges because American discourse tends to circle around America. And so they have experienced polycrisis, but it's this convergent disaster of the Republic. And then you have the Chinese version, which is more a kind of selective understanding of security threats. And then I thought, oh, well, here's the European version of this same idea. And that was 2020. Um, and then the war breaks out or Russia invades Ukraine. And at that point, I thought, right, okay, maybe we actually have to adopt this as a as a term. And I'd agree with you that If push comes to shove, when you're backed into a corner and you're trying to argue for the legitimacy of this idea as a radically novel circumstance, which I think is ultimately what lies behind it, it did in Edgar Morin as well, the argument 
was that we saw a convergence of financial instability, capitalist instability, which has always been there, geopolitics, which has always been there, and environmental stresses. And that's what's novel. It's the convergence of all three. In the end, the historical uniqueness argument is being carried by the environmental side. But the reason I've increasingly, you know, sort of dug in on the polycrisis idea is that that train of thought you were going down, namely, why can't we just focus on the climate? Yes. In the end, betrays us. In the end, that's a bad way, I think, of thinking about our circumstances. Because it's really almost an indulgence at this point to say, well, what I'm really going to focus on is 20 years of win-win green industrial investment, right? That's the kind of problem we'd love to have. Because we do have that problem or that challenge or that opportunity. But we're also going to have to deal with cross-cutting pandemics, for instance, which are going to run at a completely different temporality. And if we screw up there, we don't have 30 years to sort it out. We have to sort it out tomorrow. Otherwise, you lose control of a city like New York. You know, there are these moments where the action is much quicker. And yes, you're going to have to do this at the same time and against the headwinds of a geopolitical crisis. And so you're never really ever going to be in a situation where you can just do the 30-year decarbonisation plan, right? You're always also going to have to do that at the same time as other things. And this is something you could learn from history, philosophy of history. You could also learn it from economics, which, you know, at various points makes divisions between short-run equilibria, long-run equilibria, and then tries to divvy them out. But obviously, it's kind of a fallacious move because the, the long run is really just the composition of lots of short runs, right? The trend is, in fact expressed in the cycle at any given moment. Analytically, it may be helpful to pull them apart, but in reality, they're lived, experienced, and they pose themselves as a challenge simultaneously at the same time. And that's, I think, and, and that poses truly novel problems of analysis on the scale that we're dealing with now in this combination of extraordinary scale of economic development with the scale of financial variables just rising between the 2008 crisis and the 2020 crisis, as the books crash and shutdown show from QE quantitative easing of $100 billion a month to QE of $100 billion a day in March 2020. So that's one dimension of escalation. The other dimension of escalation is the environmental problematic, which from day to day becomes more urgent and more dramatic, and our worst fears are in some sense manifesting themselves in heating oceans and tipping points reached and pandemic zoonotic mutation shocks of a type that have been long forecasted but now finally arrive. And I would also insist on a new level of multipolarity, a new level of challenge at the geopolitical sphere, and a new quality of challenge. I mean, if you stand back historically, you can, of course, persuade yourself that we've seen great power competition before, and we were, you know, after all, we had imperialism in the late 19th century, and there was the run-up to World War One. But the great analysts of imperialism, the first globalization wave of the late 19th century, like Hobson, like Lenin, like Luxembourg, didn't kid themselves that what they were seeing was the be-all and end-all of imperialism, that that's where it was going to end, and after them it would just be repetition, right? They all, notably Hobson, looked around the globe and said, well, we've got this European configuration now. But Hobson then went on to say, but it's quite obvious that the longer-term trajectory and the real stakes in imperialism will be played out where? They'll be played out in China. And there are three options. China could disintegrate. China could be suborned by another imperial power, which would be, say, Japan, which would change the game in the Pacific totally, which is what much of the struggles of the early 20th century was about, trying to prevent that from happening. Or China could emerge as a powerful national republic, in which case that changes the global game. And that's the reality we're in. There has never been a confrontation between a challenger as large as China, as dynamic as China, and an incumbent as powerful and as self-convinced as the United States. And so, sure, yeah, at some level, abstractly, we're repeating great power politics and it's just imperialism, but on a really escalated and radical scale. And that is not just happening on that, that, that axis, though it, you know, in Mao's terms, that's the principal contradiction. But those contradictions are multiplying out. Like, you know, it's the sort of hidden radicalism behind talk of sustainable development. Talk of sustainable development implies, you know, eight to nine to maybe 10 billion people living on the planet at the level of technological sophistication, minimally of, I don't know, in Indonesia. And we just don't have a map of what global geopolitics looks like when that happens. So I ended up thinking that, in a sense, that 
that earlier stage is a prelude to the real moment of global geopolitics, which is now. Like as we enter the Anthropocene, as we enter this sort of state of collective development, that's when we're really going to have to tussle with what it would mean. You know, not everyone, of course, is empowered in the same way, but differentially speaking, we have, you know, maybe six billion people who could probably build a drone that would be capable of delivering, you know, a small explosive charge. Um, and um, that's the kind of world that we inhabit now. It's an escalating drama of, of, at all levels. It seems that this world of, of multiple superpowers, so this world of, of multipolarity, is also a world where we have to confront problems that we thought we would not have to confront. That it's, we thought that on the left we didn't have to deal with questions of war and peace anymore. We thought that those were a thing of the past. We thought that the kind of power conflicts that we see today was also a, a thing of the past. It's like there was a period in the 90s where we thought we'd gotten rid, we'd liberated ourselves from all of these problems of the old world. And now we are confronted with these problems. And to me, we don't seem very intellectually prepared for it. I think that's right. I mean, another way of, I think, of reading the polycrisis diagnosis would be to say that it's something like what comes after the end of history. And then critics like Neil Ferguson will kind of shoulder shrug and say, well, just history. <laughs> to which, you know, you say, well, Neil, you know what history was like, right? <laughs> um, so I don't really know where the shoulder shrugging comes from because, you know, you're lucky if you're Denmark for crying out loud. You could try, you could try being Poland and just history. Like, you know, um, so, so A, that, and B, as I was saying a second ago, it's history, you know, it's more historical history than we've ever experienced before. But I think that general diagnosis, the sense that maybe what's happening here is a shock of recognition that actually, yes, that simple formula, the kind of end of history formula, the Fukuyama formula, is not going to work its way through. That will be one way of, like, I think, understanding also the... It's not, it's not an interconnection, and I think we should push back quite hard against facile mechanisms for establishing interconnection, um, but... I think that's a parallelism between the three great arenas of conflict in the current moment. Like one is obviously Ukraine, um, where Russia is a classic multipolar actor, threatening its muscles, empowered by globalization, not pacified by globalization. Uh, even more dramatic on an even larger scale is obviously the China-East uh, uh, Asia confrontation, where again we gambled that economic growth would lead to pacification and the subordination of the CCP. And for a while it looked it was going that way. And then reality kicked back and we discovered that the CCP really is the bona fide legitimate heir to Maoism and the Bolshevik Russian tradition. And 1989 really did mean, should have meant, we should have understood always that in fact the CCP was not going to simply surrender. And so economic growth and the financial reserves that they accumulate, the giant exchange reserves, the claim on our assets, which the Russians, of course, also accumulated, and then perversely left in our hands as they invaded Ukraine, which I think we should take as a sort of backhanded compliment, because the last time they invaded Ukraine, we didn't confiscate their assets. So I think <laughs> they figured, like, you know, they could probably, they could probably do it twice. Um, so those are kind of like two facets of this unraveling expectation that economics would not complement politics, but really would substitute for it, that we didn't need to do it. And the third is the Middle East. And, you know, Europe was heavily invested, not just Europe, but was heavily invested in the 1990s Shimon Peres New Middle East vision, which was, again, exactly a kind of pacification vision in which explicitly modeled on the European example, which was triumphing in the 90s uh, with the end of the Cold War and the end of the, the Iron Curtain, The idea was that there really wasn't any amount of bitterness and displacement that you couldn't digest into a peaceful economic settlement. And if you wanted something that attested to that, you only really needed to look to Germany, which didn't get a better peace after World War II than after World War I, despite the legend circulated by European diplomats, but a much, much harder peace, which involved separating Germany in half, or not in half, two-thirds, one-third, and displacing 12 million Germans from the East, Germany's Nakbar, if you like. And that was very difficult for German politics to digest in the 50s and 60s, but they managed to, and the miracle that made that possible was economic growth. So you put all that together in Shimon Peres's head and his Palestinian counterparts and the Oslo process and so on, and you have this vision through which economics will fundamentally resolve the problem. And what we're looking at now is the 
the blowing up of that that vision too, right? So that would to me be like a, an analogous kind of idea about how economics is ultimately going to pacify fundamentally political constraints and political uh, political conflict. It seems to me, along with this development, there's also the slow but certain losing of Western global authority that we thought for a moment in Ukraine that now we were on the side of the innocent nation that was conquered by the imperial power or invaded by the imperial power and there was a euphoria of unity in the West for a short while uh, and there was a euphoria that now we were on the innocent side uh, and, and it seemed like, oh, Trump had gone, we had Biden back, we didn't want to go in, we would stand together but now you have this other conflict in the Middle East, which is, to say the least, a lot more problematic for the moral authority of the West. Now we actually see that the international institutions, UN, humanitarian aid organizations, they're saying something along the lines of what China is saying, whereas what we're saying in, in, in the West could be used as an argument for Putin's war. What do you think this warfare that is being supported by Western leaders and being conducted with even Danish weapons is doing to the Western authority in the world. Well, I think it's transparently very, very damaging and it's going to sit in line with the failure on vaccines during COVID, uh, debt crisis at various points, 2003 with the, the invasion of Iraq as a moment in which the West delegitimizes itself. But I also read it as a symptom of multipolarity of this sort of structural beyond the kind of normative judgments one can make. It's also, I think, analytically revealing of the increasing governance issues that arise in this setting and how problematic and difficult it's going to be for Western centers of power, even as potent as Washington, and even with the kind of connections and leverage you might imagine over Israel um, to to insist on what is now, I think, quite openly declared from Washington's side, the objective is DC, which is to freeze this conflict and shut it down as quickly as possible, and Israel's not listening. And I think the what's really revealed there is what we didn't understand, going back to the earlier argument about these three arenas in which we didn't understand the autonomy of the actors, is that as the two-state solution collapsed in the face of the Second Intifada and the escalating violence, because that's the moment where Hamas really radicalizes and goes over to suicide bombing, the Israeli right radicalized as well. And the Israeli right basically departed from the two-state solution and knowing that this would put it in structural conflict with the US, and it was a commonplace in the 2000s that a Republican American administration was better placed to actually challenge Israel than the Democratic administration because a Republican administration is stronger on the national security side. That knowing that Israel might find itself in conflict with the US. The Israeli right under Sharon with Netanyahu as his finance minister and then over the decades of Netanyahu's career very systematically set about hardening itself so as to be in a position to avoid the kind of pressure that Israel was put under in the 70s and 80s by its financial weakness. And so there's a very, very concerted push by the Israeli government. It's very smart. It's a really strategic design to to establish Israel's autonomy as, a, as an actor, because if you're going to pursue essentially a one-state solution and you're going to push the settlements project in the West Bank, you know that you're going to have to resist external pressure, including from the US. And how do you do this in economic terms? Well, you essentially adopt the same method as the Russian and the Chinese. You run a trade surplus, you accumulate a large foreign exchange reserve, you raise your uh, standing in international bond markets, you maintain capital account openness, which the Russians did to a fault up to 2022. You accept the neoliberal implications of this at home, which means austerity. You reshuffle the the, the 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 domestic budget, as Russia did as well, as China does to an extent, if you follow Pettis and Klein, so as to create this imbalance, uh, and you put yourself in a creditor position towards the international system. And Israel has followed this line with extraordinary, as I hear, I could show you the graph of foreign, Israel's foreign exchange reserves in relation to its GDP. They're larger than those of China or those of Russia. It's a really underrated element that shows the kind of coherence of... Israeli government and, and uh, across successive coalitions. And it's the way also in which the new vision of Israel, the new vision of tech Israel, of Tel Aviv, of cosmopolitan Israel is, is, is connected to the coercive side. Um, 
because one of the things you do as you globalize Israel is you make it less and less dependent on Palestinian labor. So during the first and the second intifada, one of the big interruptions to the Israeli economy was that they use security measures, they seal off the West Bank and Gaza, and you can't run the Israeli construction sector or its service sector without that labor. But from the 90s onwards, after the first intifada, they began to make Israel a much more cosmopolitan place, draw in foreign labor from all over Asia in the same way as the Gulf states do. And that then creates this independence, right? Because the question we have to ask about Gaza is how come two and a quarter million people are just completely disposable? Like how can you be in that position? If you put just gravity models, we'll tell you in economics, you put two economic entities alongside <laughs> each other, they go together, right? People migrate across the boundary they work. If you're actually in a situation where one lot can just predate the other lot, and vice versa, of course, um, then that tells you something that something very unnatural has happened in those interconnections. Um, and, and so it's this kind of intermingling of tactics on the ground, strategic project with regards to the longer term future of a Jewish Israel, and this deliberate positioning in the global economy, which we shouldn't underestimate. And Europeans are profoundly naive when they point to the two-state solution as the goal, which is still on the horizon, was once. But that really does belong a little bit like Vandal de Handel in the kind of armory of 90s and early 2000s platitudes about how this is going to happen, or turning China into a, or as a responsible stakeholder. I mean, they're a very responsible actor in their own terms, but they may not be a stakeholder in our enterprise. And in the same way, I think we have to understand, and the Americans do, let's be very clear, the conversation in the US is much more open about this, because successive American presidents have been humiliated by Netanyahu, who has repeatedly used his leverage in the American political system to just put two fingers up to them. American Secretary of State will visit, they'll make a big settler announcement the next day because they're playing both constituencies. No one in New York or in Washington DC is under any illusions about this and it really would be healthy if Europe could kind of wake up, smell coffee and understand who we're dealing with here. So there's an, a, a bloody and brutal irony of this situation that at the moment where Europe is showing its almost permanent solidarity with Israel, and to a certain extent, unconditional. I know they're saying things, but in practice, it seems almost unconditional that actually, at the same time, Israel is pursuing a strategy of liberating itself from the vulnerability to Western pressure. Yes, but I mean, maybe if we can abstract from the specific instance, I mean, the more general point, I think, is the refusal to take politics seriously. I mean, surely the existence, you know, the right of existence of Israel should not be questioned, full stop. And Jewish lives matter in the same way as other people's lives matter. They absolutely do. And anti-Semitism is one of the great curses of European history. But the situation, as Haaretz or any liberal Israeli will tell you, the situation in Gaza didn't start on October 7th. It's the product of a, a decades of policies pursued towards the occupied territories. And in recent decades, that has been driven by an agenda of the right, which in a pattern which is so familiar in Europe as well, has sucked the Israeli center of ground towards it. Right? Because these are very difficult issues to protest on. If you think about the protests in Israel about Netanyahu's attack on the judicial system, which we should remember, three or four months ago, were taken to be on the same level as Putin or Erdogan. And you could go to Tel Aviv in 2019 and see posters of Netanyahu celebrating his meetings with Donald Trump and, and Vladimir Putin on either sides of a big building. Right? So that is how we understood what was going on there. The entire opposition movement in Israel was agreed that the one thing they would not do in those massive protests is mention the occupied territories. That was hors de discussion. It was out of discussion. So in the same way as issues, for instance, of fundamental issues to do with migration policy in Europe have been sucked to the right, right, out of the center, really, certainly far away from the left to the right. Something quite similar has, has happened in the, in the Israeli case. And so therefore, to just simply align with this state, in principle, of course, its existence must be protected, and that's not that's not up for grabs. And Hamas, let's be clear, doesn't pose an existential threat to Israel. No serious Israeli strategist would imagine otherwise. Neither does Hezbollah. Like so, Iran, different matter, but Iran is a very long way away, and it would have a very hard time striking. Israel is not in the position of 1973. In 1973, it was being invaded, or on the threat of being invaded by Egypt and Syria with massive armed forces backed by the Soviet Union backed by the Soviet Union. Israel was fighting a proxy war with the Soviet Union, which is why it took such heavy losses, because these, the Soviets were supplying them with top, top-notch modern equipment at that moment, the humiliating you know, experience at the hands of the, 
of the, the Russian, the Soviet rockets. You know, Hamas is lobbying these improvised explosive devices against an iron dome. It's horrible if you're on the onside of it, but it's not an existential threat. And so this, you know, navigating this is, is, uh, is something that you can only do if you embrace the political side. And instead, I think, along with this shift, this is a Sam Moyne argument, right? Along with this shift to rules-based, economic-based logics in politics, there was also a shift to a rights-based, values-based conception of politics, which was instantiated in human rights discourse, for instance, um, and the prevalence of global human rights. And what we've kind of lost track of is politics in the more conventional sense of progressive reactionary. We've lost sense of like a spectrum. And, and so solidarity with a state per se on the grounds of fundamental values and the you know, opposition to anti-Semitism is a refusal to face the reality of an actually existing state which is driven by a particular political agenda at this moment. And then you get into the terrain of regime change and so on, and of course that's taboo and we can't go there. So then the, the real essence of this problem is how do you support a state which is being run by, uh, on both sides, right? And how do you relate to, to Gaza, given that it's, you know, to a certain extent, Hamas can, can train control? How do, you, how do you relate to a situation like Israel? And it's the same with China. Like, the Americans will tell you to the cows come home. They don't oppose the Chinese people. <laughs> they just oppose the regime run by the CCP. Or go out and actually find Chinese people on the street in China who will distance themselves from the CCP on those terms. They will distance themselves from the CCP on all sorts of local matters, but if it's a matter of aligning yourself with America against China led by the CCP, you're not going to find a lot of takers for that position. Americans liberals love to imagine that that's actually an attractive offer. It's crazy. Right? <laughs> like it's, it's really a misunderstanding of the nature of how history works. And so in the end, you have to make very bitter compromises. You actually have to do deals. You were telling me at lunch that the Norwegians refused to refer to Hamas as a terrorist organization. Why? Because they've actually had to broker a deal. Yeah. And if you've actually had to broker a deal, starting that way is not a very propitious place to start from. It's the sort of logic which meant that Nelson Mandela couldn't be talked to because he was a terrorist, right? So there's, there's like really quite fundamental, and I'm not making a moral equivalence between Hamas and Nelson Mandela, <laughs> um, but I'm saying that that rhetoric of terrorism, that rhetoric of exclusion of politics, right, is, is a, it's a denial of the difficult issues that we actually have to resolve. Hamas is a m mass political organization. It may no longer be able to win votes in Gaza, but that's the nature of the beast. And to imagine that you can erase it by simply killing its command chain is incredibly, well, it's, 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 it's in such bad faith that you don't actually believe that anyone in Israel can possibly actually believe that, right? It's just a silly idea. So, they're after something else. They want vengeance. They want to show a force. They just simply want to make Gaza an uninhabitable. Who knows? But it can't be taken at face value. I think this situation also poses some serious challenges to the left. Because if you look at the progressive left in the West over the last decade or so, it seems to me that the triumphs of the left, and there have been some with Black Lives Matter, with the Me Too movement, they've all been driven by moral policies. Policies where you could be take the moral high ground and say, this is right, and you could be radicalist uh, about it. But when it comes to how do we make some sort of settlement with Putin, how do we get out of the war in Ukraine without losing? How do we deal with China and get the best of the green transition and kind of limit the, the political pressure that comes from China? These very difficult questions, it seems to me that the left is even more unequipped to deal with them than the right. How do you see the position of the left here? Yeah, I don't think it, it isn't just mainstream, you know, mainstream policy that succumbed to this illusion or no. found it convenient to succumb to this illusion. And um, the illusion being that economics would take care of things, right? Because deep down in most leftists, it's a sort of materialist kind of logic. And it was very convenient for all of us to allow the peace question, which I'll just bracket everything you just described. That's essentially the peace yes. question. You could just hand that over to Wall Street because Wall Street was going to take care of peace with China, right? The money interest, what Karl Polanyi called the peace interest, um, was, as it were, anchoring the global order. And so then we lived in a world which Habermas described as global politics, so global domestic policy, and the left wins on the domestic policy. Right? We do, so yes. That's our, that's our domain. Um, and, and it was such a relief after the agonies of the late Cold War, where to be leftist meant, on the one hand, to be liberal at home, and on the other hand, to shake the hands of some oppressive dictator in Poland, 
you know, the next day. This is what we forget about Willy Brandt, you know, the famous moment of the Kniefall in Warsaw before the, before the, the monument to the Warsaw, uh, the Jewish ghetto uprising, um, was literally minutes after he'd shaken the hands of communist bureaucrats who'd been responsible for killing Polish demonstrators the day before. Right? That's the nature of compromising a Cold War situation, as it involves all of these dirty hand problems. And he was pilloried at the time for making those concessions and making that gesture, which we now remember, certainly in Germany, as one of the great moral gestures that a Democrat has made in the 20th century, down on his knees asking for forgiveness. So, and you know, all the way to Michael Foote in the 80s, Jeremy Corbyn is the last real victim of this kind of like, you know, crosshairs, right? Because one thing you could say about him was that he was a lifelong devout internationalist who systematically refused to condemn the IRA, the PLO, the ANC, and now on television, Hamas as well, right? And, and that, so the, the stakes here are huge, and it was oh so comfortable to delegate all of the difficult problems to Wall Street and say whether whatever we position we take on the CCP, Wall Street is in bed with them, and so that whole peace question doesn't arise. America's not going to be in a position of struggle with China. Now, all of that comes flooding back, and all of the very difficult compromises that have to be made, like how do you arbitrate the fate of Taiwan against the need to and the efficiency to be gained by cooperating with China on the green energy transition? Because China, let's not kid ourselves, is driving the green energy transition. It is doing 50% of global investment in, glo in green stuff. So this isn't Putin, where it's kind of, you know, the, the cards are stacked up. It's reactionary every <laughs> way. You could argue that's a relatively simple problem. China really isn't. Um, and, and so how do you arbitrate that against, you know, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, um, and, and Taiwan? Like, how, how, does one, how does one balance these, these conflicting imperatives? And we don't, I think, I don't have any simple answers. What I'm realizing is I've kind of lost the habit of thinking about these problems in the way that in the 80s we were raised thinking about them. Every leftist will remember being told to go and live in Moscow. Um, <laughs> You know, and I was a trot, neither Washington nor Moscow, which put you in that kind of slot. <laughs> and um, those are the sorts of choices that we need to start thinking about again. Neither Washington nor Moscow, or well, neither Washington nor Beijing. Is that going to be the position? If so, what does that imply? On the climate issue, it's not actually a moral equivalent. China is delivering the energy transition. Currently, they're on track, the first country ever to actually get on track. To on the large scale that we need. They're doing 50% of global green energy investment, half, right, from a country which is responsible for 14% of historic emissions and, you know, maybe a third of emissions in the current moment. That's where all the energy is. So that liberal formula, which we used to, you know, calm ourselves with, which was maybe that, you know, industrial progress and machinery was on the side of the free world, quote, unquote, yes is kind of collapsing before our eyes. And we should really guard against any rhetorical efforts to reinstate it. And so that puts us back in the terrain of the 1930s. That puts us back in the terrain that left his face when faced with Stalinism in its first flush, right, in the 30s and then through World War II. Like, w those were the really hard compromises and hard problems that the, the, the European, the global left, had to arbitrate, is how do you stand in relation to an undeniably violent, oppressive, tyrannical force, which is also apparently the vector of dramatic material progress and efficacious and crucial in defeating your enemies. And that's a, and in this case, you know, one case Nazism, the other case the climate disaster. So, you know, these are, these are problems we are not, um, we are not habituated with dealing with anymore. And, and, uh, I'm afraid of them, to be honest. They're really, they're bad, they're bad news. And people on the left made a bunch of really bad choices consecutively. And liberals have not allowed us to forget that. They themselves dress themselves up in prim clarity of mind. <laughs> right? You know, the Tim Snyder, uh, uh, Tony Judd, you know, Camus Sartre kind of like, you know, simplicities. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't pretend to ourselves that these are easy, easy going to be easy choices, right? Um, and so that's kind of what I'm overawed by a little bit currently. But and, and I think we're all overawed by it and continually, continually more, more, more and more. From, it's from only going to, this is one thing that is yes. very clear. It's not, we shouldn't imagine this tension's going to ebb away and we go back to some normality like that. That I'm pretty, that 90s, 2000 thing, say 89 through 2008, I think that was pretty, and that's bracketing 9-11 and everything else. You know, obviously, if you're in Iraq, that's true, makes no sense. <laughs> but there's a hopeful point to it, actually, too, 
which is that I remember the first times we were writing about climate change saying, well, now it's no longer in the hands of the West. We're no longer the authors of our own destiny because emissions yeah. are rising in China, yeah. they're rising in India. And it felt like, oh, we were losing control of world history because yes. it was taken for granted that, that we would be the best equipped to solve the problem, yeah. that democracies would be able to respond to demand from grassroots movement and doublet information and people like, la, 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 like us. And now, actually, looking at what China is doing, yeah. the velocity and the scale of what they're doing, yeah. I'm not so sure that I'm not glad that they have the power that they have when it comes to the green transition. I okay, well, that's one answer to this <laughs> dilemma that we're sketching. I think, you know, this is the... And what do we make of the fact that you folks would not exist in Beijing? There is no space for anything like Definitely. this in Beijing. And you De know that, and I know that. And, like... Maybe if you're outside the absolute center of power in Chengdu or somewhere like that, you can maybe have an independent bookshop if you're lucky. No, seriously, it's true. Like you know, if you if you know Chinese people who've, who've been in and out recently, you can speak freely. It's quite clear that the policing is much more intense at the center. Um, but we know that our folks like ourselves could not exist in that form there. Definitely. And not. so, what do we make of that? How do we? What do we? What do we do when we? You know, when we say that, when we look ourselves in the mirror and say, "I'm, I am glad that they," um, I find that a really perplexing. I mean, I mean, broadly speaking, the crucial thing is, it doesn't matter what we think. No. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the weird like hubris that's involved in so many of these value judgment things. Like we're basically just bystanders, notably in Europe. Like what the Germans imagine, you know, why they imagine that the position they take really matters to anyone other than themselves, which makes it an intensely narcissistic preoccupation, is quite puzzling, right? Because, you know, Germany's Staatsraison is to secure, help to, you know, assist in securing Israel's security. Like, <laughs> you know, Germany leases drones from Israel, not the other way around. Like, their military assistance to Israel, if they were going to take this seriously, involved literally reversing the lease and handing the Israelis the, the weaponized drones that they yeah. leased from the Israelis back. Like, Germany doesn't have any capacity, right? So... So these are like in the, on the climate on the on the climate problem. We have to go back to the beginning. It's not in our hands. It doesn't matter. It's happening one way or the other. We can sit here and be pleased or relieved or not. The Chinese are doing the climate transition for their own sake, uh, principally in the first instance because it's very closely tied to pollution. Because the Chinese climate problem is a coal problem, not an oil problem, and so the pollution effects are immediate in the surrounding areas, and children die immediately as a result of asthma. And that localizes the problem. And so we get to observe it and how, you know, decide how we position ourselves in relation to it. But in a sense, we don't, we don't kind of need to take a moral stance on it. We don't need to, like, that's one way, I think, of responding to this. They are by themselves acting in the right direction. And so there's a kind of relief in that. There's a relief in that. It's as though the policymakers of the 30s had gotten their way and a war between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany had started all by itself and we hadn't to be involved and we can just kind of watch. <laughs> uh, just uh, one last question which will be about Ukraine because I think that is a very difficult question at the moment because it seems to me that now we're at a stalemate but Russia has the capacity to continue. They have not the popular will but the political will to continue sacrificing thousands and thousands and thousands of, 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 of Russians. And it's very hard to imagine a peace deal with, the, with, with Putin. And it's even harder, I think, to see if you're Ukraine, if you're in Kiev, who would you trust to give you security guarantees? Who would, uh, who, who would you trust to, to give you these guarantees? It's clear that we're not, we're, we're, the West is not going in there, not just because of the risk of escalation, be, but because of a profound fatigue about going to war in, 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 in foreign countries. And it seems to me that right now the best we can hope for is a kind of stalemate, frozen conflict that will eventually be a kind of peace agreement, hopefully signed in Beijing, which will limit Putin to, to, a, to a certain extent. This, for a year ago, for many, was seen as a horror scenario. It seems to me almost utopian now. H how do you see this, the trajectory of the Ukraine conflict? Mm, yeah, not just a horror scenario, but a kind of treason, right? a betrayal of values exactly. that we stand for. Um, 
So it was horrible both in its sort of practical consequences, but also for who we thought we were and what we thought the destiny of our cause was, which was Europe or freedom and the ability to resist and sanction tyrants like Putin, right? That and and now we're in a position where I at some level you you might indeed say that like we should negotiation and an end and exit or stabilization would be certainly not the worst of all conceivable outcomes. I mean, that would be another example of the moment where it seems to me that progressive politics has an incredibly hard set of challenges on its plate yes. now, because you end up, you know, in a variety of very unappetizing places very, very quickly. You know, one of which is the sort of Sarah Wagenknecht position. I keep, sorry, referring to German examples. That's the European scene that I know best. Um, and, you know, where she couples it with a kind of really rather, um, um, really distasteful, I think, this sort of realism argument. You know, yes. that, you know, if only we'd been more realistic in our dealings with Putin. I think we need to deal with Putin. At some point, there has to be negotiation. Um, whether or not we want to dress that up as realism, I don't know. That would be like one objection. It's not a substantive objection, but it is something about the politics of that moment that I think makes it very horrible. Analytically, the thing that's really puzzling about that war is that neither side is actually engaged in a total war effort, despite the fact that it's an existential struggle for both. And that goes back to this more general puzzle about the nature of the situation that we're in. Um, because Russia's military effort right now appears to be at the level of about 7 to 8% of GDP, which is what the US was spending during the Vietnam War. So they can continue that indefinitely. And our efforts to sanction and control their economy, the logic of using kind of economics to solve the political problem have been unavailing because there is global demand for their, forget the gas, it's not about gas, it's about the oil. And there is global demand for their oil. And so really they can keep on going. And even more puzzling in some level is the Ukrainian side because Ukraine, as far as I can tell from the IMF data, is not above maybe 20% of GDP as part of the war effort which is remarkably low considering the stakes for them. And I think ultimately the rate limiting factor here is bodies, is lives. How many young men on each side or youngish, the Ukrainians are increasingly middle-aged, how many they can actually tear out of these societies and throw into this meat grinder, which the, the war has become. And that's actually limiting their ability to fight this war to a finish. And then we're not giving, the West is not giving the Ukrainians the equipment that will be necessary to fight this in a decisive way one way or another. And that's been one of the conditions limiting American aid from the very beginning is enough to keep them in the fight, but not enough really to allow them to win against an opponent like Russia. So for me, it's a truly, this is one of those moments where I think, you know, tragedy is probably the right kind of category to place this in. And it's not obvious to me that we have any better recommendation than to put the Ukrainians in a position to negotiate from a position at least which isn't that of defeat, right? And to have stopped the Russians the way they have ought to be something that could be celebrated as a victory. It ought to be yes. compared to what we expected. And maybe that's the challenge to find a way in which Ukrainian politics can celebrate the incredible achievement that stopping the Russians does constitute and find some way of honoring the huge sacrifice of you know people that, that that have made in the process and that is a huge challenge for a democracy and and if it does actually if kiev reaches the point where it signals that it wants to enter into negotiation then it really behooves europe bubble europe to assist ukraine in every way possible to make that process appear like seizing an opportunity out of a out of the horror that was inflicted on them by the Russian assault because and and you know because the politics are all going to go the other way yes. like negotiation with Putin I think is a lethal risk for anyone who engages it you only have to think back to Rabin and his fate in Israel think back to Ireland in the 1920s um to the to the price paid by anyone that was willing to negotiate in a situation like this. They become traitors to those who have made sacrifices on a huge scale. So anything that Europe can do to recast what by rights should count as an incredible heroic stand by a democracy against a totally unprovoked, you know, certainly in any tactical sense of the word, unprovoked Russian attack, um, you know, is something that you, you should make Europe should make an absolute priority. That that I think is what we might be able to rescue is 
also at a higher level ability is democracy's ability to negotiate on those terms. It's one of the reasons why I find the history of the 20th century written in terms of a lesson learning from a supposedly terrible peace in World War I to a much better peace in World War II, very, very unsatisfying. Because in World War II, there was no negotiating, right? In World War II, we crushed Germany. There was nothing in between. We ground it to dust, as Churchill evocatively said. There were only dead Germans between the advancing Americans and Soviets. Nothing in between. No one to negotiate with. That's the basis on which we made a peace. The extraordinary thing about World War I is it ends with negotiation. Not much negotiation. Yeah. It's brutal negotiation. But the Germans are given the choice, do you want to sign this peace treaty or not? Which is not unconditional surrender in the sense that was after World War II. And that, to me, is the real, that is the triumph of German democracy also at that moment in saying the first act of democracy is, in a sense, to negotiate a truly horrible peace. And there isn't, there is no achievement Ukrainian democracy that could, could deliver that would outdo that in terms of democratic, the demands on a democratic polity, like exiting on terms of their choosing at the moment that they decide that they, they want to enter the negotiations. But that is the truly heroic political act, right? To accept that you can only do so much, that the world is not the way you would want it to be, that an enemy has inflicted horrible losses on you, but that reason, political reason in the widest sense of the word, really for Anfotonsetik in Max Weber's sense, like the ethic of responsibility says that now we must deal with the hand we've got. You know, that's, you know, those people should have protection, they should have celebration. These are the people that we should like own as true Europeans, I think. Um, that to me is a much, much more profound statement of democratic politics than the triumphalism of marching to Moscow and those kind of stories, which were completely unrealistic and it was thoroughly irresponsible of the West to indulge those kind of ideas for the period of time that it did, given how limited our actual commitment to their struggle has been. But, yeah, it's, um, I think that is a somewhat hopeful note, given, given that... I was really trying. Like, yes, but know, I think you did very well. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, but given that there's still a heroic moment to bear the, the, the hero future. heroism consists in yes it, it, it really does yeah. and saying well this is a moment same in, in the Middle East yes always did and this is a moment in time that does require dirty compromise in order to save our own dignity and that chance is still there in Ukraine so I think that is a hopeful ending maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I want to uh, I have a lot of other questions but I want to open the floor for, for you guys we have a question here from Rune uh, thanks I'd like to return to the question of the left. Uh, probably, if we had this talk three or four years ago, we'd be discussing sort of left populism, the Sanders, Podemos. Uh, um, it seems like the last couple of years we've seen a, basically a defeat of most of these movements, not a lot of uh, re-emergence. What's your read on, on the state of, of left populism, that sort of... Um, you know, hegemonic move? Is that like torn apart by geopolitics, overtaken by sort of leftward swing in liberalism, or is it mostly a conjunctural thing uh, right now? I, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, I mean, since I'm like, I should we say that I'm speaking about the left, if you like, because, you know, I kind of entered into as a left liberal, so I don't, you know, I, I, though these are, you know, good friends and comrades in some sense, <laughs> other people's problem. Um, but I loved your second point, maybe, the, you know, I think in the American case, you'd make some sort of dialectical argument by which, you know, the constructive and dynamic elements of Biden economics are really a legacy of that left populist moment, like quite literally coming out of the energy of the Santos campaign, the Green New Deal and Elizabeth Warren's campaign. You can trace the individual personal affiliations and lineages. It isn't the case that Sanders' two pushes on the democratic establishment were without consequence. They've been very significant. And the most significant area there is climate. Um, where you know the Biden administration is moved in a much more aggressive way and with a sense of purpose. In other words, we must not fail on this. Um, that was very, very significantly influenced by the by the base, uh, the 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 youthful, the youthful, the youthful base that really rallied from 2018 onwards. I think the agony of the current moment is that that's also precisely the constituency that they are breaking the heart of over over Israel Palestine. Right? Again, the polling is incredibly unambiguous on this score. The um, the 
uh, folks of color in the United States, younger people are, um, you know, very large majorities opposed to the scale of assistance America is currently giving to Israel. So foreign policy is tearing apart, you know, what in some senses should have been one at least of the key pieces of the Biden coalition, which they could count on in the election next year. And they're going to have an incredibly hard time with the other pieces of what was their coalition in any case. So it, it makes one extremely anxious, I think. In Europe, where would you see it? I mean, you could make a similar kind of dialectical argument, I think, for the incorporation of the green agenda. To my mind, the, the real energy of the commission around climate also was very much part of a an effort to find a new base, a new democratic base for, if you've spoke to people like Franz Timmermans or whatever, they were clearly in the business of trying to revive social democracy with the energy of the 28, you know, Fridays for Future, those kind of, that kind of protest movement. Um, COVID was terrible for it. We shouldn't underestimate that shock, I think, right? It stopped many of the street protests. It stopped much of the, the mass mobilization. Um, and I think, you know, specifically, and I guess these questions that I'm asking are addressed also to my friends on the left. And they're actually sharpened by my experience of dealing with people, notably in the climate space, that there still is a belief in a sense that it is in the left-right struggle the struggle of righteous scientific progressive knowledge over reactionary ignorance and superstition that the answer to the climate problem will be found and thus the key to world history. And and the reality is I think that it's sidetracked and moved past that that you know that, that reality. Of course it still matters what Europe does and each individual fight has to be fought. And European politics doesn't rely to the same extent. No part of European politics relies to the same extent on a sense of historical mission that infuses the American political scene across the spectrum, um, but it's misplaced, it's misguided, you know, it's historically misguided um, to imagine that, as it were, in that struggle, um, ultimately these issues of, um, you know, of, of world historic significance around climate will be decided, they just aren't going to be. And so even in that kind of dialectical subsumption of the dynamism of the left into the climate programs, there's a kind of, it ends on a slightly sad note because yes, rather late in the day, now, absolutely, but real energy is somewhere else in a regime which has a completely different logic. And I've yet to see a kind of left populist account, maybe you can point me to one, of the global dynamic that would somehow do justice and make clear where you position yourself. I mean, my hunch, I guess, what I'm pointing towards is that there is potential, and maybe this is the bargain connect option, in a kind of peace movement of the left that said we don't want to be part of this massive global escalation that's going on, you know, on or once, like why should we do this? Like why why are we doing that? That's of course a freighted reference, but like nevertheless, why why is that part of a progressive agenda at the current moment? Um, maybe that's maybe that's also it's not it's not an idea, like I'm saying. Like for me this is more an open question than something I feel I really know where to go with. But I know that certainly friends on the American left see Sanders in that way and saw Corbyn in that way. And that was, you know, they're internationalists at heart. Uh, they walk a fine line, notably Sanders, but Corbyn really didn't. And that was what made him attractive, powerful. And then to the end, in their analysis, also made him the object of the kind of vitriolic targeted attack which he's been subject to now. So sort of the auto, they would maybe describe it as like the autoimmune response of the centrist, like <laughs> the Starmer type people is overshot in this massive way. So that, and that's also part of this marginalization that we're seeing. I think we have time for one last question. And it's not that I know the names of all of our readers. Yes, thank you. My name is Nils. Uh, tying into trajectories of uh, tragedy and maybe also touching upon uh, European legitimacy uh, globally, you mentioned briefly how uh, migration has been pulled from the from the left <laughs> to to the to the right. There are some watershed moments for Europe uh, from 2015 until today. We have a, a demographic issue, some would call it, or uh, within the, you know Central Africa migration movements that uh, are still to be might still. Uh, be seen. What would uh, you say to the trajectory, so to speak, of, uh, of migration within the European context and do you think it has an effect on European uh, legitimacy globally? Well, I think there's any question that it does, yes. And the stark contrast between the reception given to the Syrians in much of Europe and the Ukrainians has not been lost on anyone, nor has the accompanying rhetoric of, well, they're just people like us. Um, 
and oh well clearly where should the Palestinians go well they should go to another Muslim country as though the world was divided up into blocks of people that you know were neatly sorted by skin color and religion and that's how like you know Europeans imagine where folks should be allocated to I think it's a um it's a running sore, really. And, and it is, but, you know, these things aren't givens. It's a matter of whether they're politicized or not. And you know, at certain moments, like speaking, in fact, to social democratic ministers only this morning, it's quite clear that their entire strategy consists in a managerial one. Not, I think, because they're fundamentally indecent people, but because they just can't see how the left wins on that terrain. And so what they want to do is bury the migration issue in a well-managed security system. You know, the minister in question had just been to Tunisia, where Denmark is apparently training Tunisian border guards on the professional and, you know, human rights-informed treatment of migrants in Tunisia. I'm not making this up, literally. Um, and, no, and, we're and living surely, with it. So and we surely, know. surely that's better, right, than not training Tunisian border guards in human rights. Um, but those seem to be, and that's the terrain that the Social Democrats are in, because they want to just push this question down and out of sight so they can focus on other things. Because they, that, And again, I don't think it's because they're inhumane or immoral. It's because they just don't think it's terrain they can win on. And if it allowed to explode and become the central terrain, then you're on the losing foot and all of your coalitional possibilities are worse. And that, as a Keynesian, I actually find quite persuasive, right? But it's obviously also an open door to a system that's abusive, that denies the force of historical change, that's really just a clever way of bunkering yourself in, a bunch of really, really dirty hand solutions. And so the question should be, like, are there other ways to go? And I, like, you know, whenever it was, like, uh, September 30th or something, submitted a op-ed to the FT saying, thinking about Germany, where this issue is bubbling up really hard, you know, the solution is obviously for right-thinking centrist parties to band together to advocate for large-scale public investment, break the debt break, open up a, an emergency fund that um, is basically devoted to making a more diverse Germany a successful experiment. It's a bit like trying to embrace the difficulty in Ukraine. Face this as a huge democratic challenge. It faced the fact that Know, a society which is now 28% mentioned Migrationshintergrund, so first generation or second generation, at least one parent with a foreign background, where in big cities in Germany, 50 plus percent of the kids are, again, either themselves recently arrived or their parents, one of their parents is. Like, this is a huge challenge for a democracy. One of the things we can look in the mirror and say, well, we tried that. I'm not saying it's a patent formula, but spend some money on things like education, kindergarten places, healthcare, housing. Like, you know, why not? It seems like a reasonable <laughs> hypothesis. If we want to be able to say to ourselves, we tried to make a go of this, we should have spent a lot of money on those things. This would be a great thing to have a, you know, a German, they should have three funds, basically, you know, for climate, for defense, and for this, you know. <laughs> and then October 7th happens, and the German government lines up in a position which basically imposes a burden of proof on all its Muslim citizens that they have to devote themselves to the German Staatsraison, defined entirely in terms of Germany's own history, entirely regardless of those people's own history and personal circumstances. And on the other hand, the Constitutional Court says that all of these, you know, <laughs> these funds that you've created are basically violating the Schuldenbremse. <laughs> so, like my little pretty formula for, you know, addressing this issue in a constructive way within Europe's biggest state, um, which is engaged in a historically significant experiment here, right? For Germany to be the state that it's become. I know this isn't exclusively to Germany, but no, after no. all, given its history. It's quite remarkable, um, you know, has just been blown to smithereens, both from the political side and from the fiscal legal side. So you have to start again and do it again, presumably, and figure something out here. But um, that's the, I mean, that's one leg. And the other leg are the various designs for Marshall Plans with Africa, various developmental projects. But again and again and again, ever since at least Merkel post-1516, right? Remember 2017 started with the Germans pushing a Marshall Plan not for or in Africa, but with Africa. Um, it seems like a perfect idea, made, made a lot of sense politically, far better presumably than just training border guards or doing some deal with Libyan warlords or whatever. But then you look at the funding and it's the same old European story, which is this clever design, a basic, you know, an understanding of like a world that's um, 
that we need to react to because I totally agree that this is the other great world historic challenge that we're up against because the demographic thing you were cautious about, I think we shouldn't be cautious about it. The, the, the drama of African population growth is a world historic shock, much bigger in many ways than the you know, re-arrival of India or China. They used to be the center of the world economy. Like, we've never been in a world where Africa is densely populated just never ever been in it, right? This is a radical novum. So addressing that absolutely needs to be a project. But if you're going to do it, you've got to do it at scale. And this is Europe's, you know, recurring issue that you can see the design, you can see the outlines of a, like, a rational conception of policy, which is just systematically undercut by the small scale at which you react. And so then you have to ask yourself, do you actually get it? Or are you really just kind of, again, it's kind of narcissism. Are you just really doing this because, you know, you would feel better saying that you had a policy, which is not the same as actually having a policy that will work. It's simply saying we can tick that box, we understand that world, we've satisfied this sort of imperative to give coherence to things, which is where the polycrisis idea started with Jean-Claude Juncker, who was the progenitor of many of these investment plans. The Juncker investment plan was the first of these highly leveraged, minimal amounts of EU money, maximum amount of private leverage schemes, and they're still at it. And that, you know, that won't do. That clearly is just something that will lead us into a more and more delegitimizing state in which more and more people die by the day in the Mediterranean every year. And I think, I mean, we know that, right? I mean, so there are certain things which are hard to see and foretell, and that one really isn't. And there are lots of things we would like to say to that, especially about the Social Democrats' immigration policies here in, <laughs> here in Denmark, what, they, what they're saying and what they're doing, and how there's another way of doing things different places in, in Europe. But we don't have the, the, the time for that. Adam, it is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. here. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Det her var min samtale med Adam Tues fra Informationskantine. Jeg håber, I bærer over med den lidt rustikke lyd og tænker, at det var vel nok autentisk, man kunne høre det. Hvis man tænker, at Adam han var godt nok så spændende, så ham vil man gerne læse noget mere af. Eller hvis man tænker, at man vil give sig selv en julegave. Og hvis man også er den, der giver julegaver til andre af progressive karakterer, så kan jeg anbefale, at man går ind på butik.information.dk og derinde kan man købe hans bog nedlukket om, hvordan corona har rystet verdensøkonomien. Det er en fantastisk god bog. Men det er også der, hvor man kan gå ind, hvis man tænker, jeg vil skulle gerne støtte information. Det her enorme modstandsprojekt, der bliver ved med at lægge gratis samtaler med nogle af de største tænkere, aktivister og underlige hoveder ud til mig, så kan man også gå derind og købe sig et abonnement på Dagbladet Information. Så det kan jeg faktisk alt sammen anbefale, både fordi det er rart at støtte gode progressive kræfter i verden, og fordi det er rart at få adgang til hele lortet for information. Den her samtale var produceret af vores gode venner og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. Og så i næste uge, der følger min samtale med forskeren og forfatteren, Min Seng Pei, som har lavet en ny bog, der meget vel kunne gå hen og blive det autoriserede værk om den kinesiske overvågningsstat. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak fordi I lyttede med.